Let me introduce um, uh, author, best-selling author of uh, of The Lost City of Z, which is a major motion picture in theaters today. By the way, I just saw it on Sunday. That's that's David Grant's work. Oh my god, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's so, absolutely so, so, amazing. No. So amazing. this isn't just an author. This is a celebrity, as far as we're concerned. So let me go ahead and introduce David Grant. David Grant, thank you so much for joining us here on Let's Talk. Well, thank you so much for having me on the program. Well, yeah, I want to get right into it with this book. Obviously, you have had tremendous success with uh, uh, The Lost City of Z. Um, and I'm hoping that uh, you have the same level of success with this story. This story is very, very compelling. Um, I was, I, I, I'm a native activist, so I was aware, and, and I, I'm in, I have a network of native people throughout the um, Turtle Island, as we say. Uh, so I was aware of some of this, um, but you do just a great account of, of this whole thing. And uh, so, so first off, go ahead and give an overview of just what is, um, just what, what occurred with the Osage. Yeah, so um, uh, the Osage, um had, uh, like so many uh, American Indian nations, they were uh, driven off their lands. They once controlled much of the central part of the country, um, and then they were uh, confined to a reservation in northeast Oklahoma. They actually purchased their own land when they were driven there. Uh, most whites considered the land worthless, which, which is why a, a, an Osage chief had said we should move there, because he said he thought, well, maybe the white people will finally leave us alone. And then, lo and behold, that territory turned out to be sitting upon some of the largest deposits of oil um, in the country. Uh, and in the early beginning of the 20th century, the Osage became the wealthiest people per capita in the world. And then they began to be mysteriously uh, murdered one by one. And what I would come to realize was one of, mo one of the most sinister crimes in American history. Well, and, and again, when we, we talk about this, uh, the... The level of premeditation involved in not just the idea of uh, of trying to capture the wealth of these folks, but but essentially to change change the people themselves. I mean, uh, let's let's get into it a little bit because um, obviously there's a couple of singular stories, but then it expands beyond that. And and I know the the probably the complete story isn't even completely available because uh, not all of the individuals, uh, Osage individuals who would um, essentially turn up missing um, would, uh, you know, they would, they wouldn't fully account for those deaths. No, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, when I began the story, um, it took me about five years to research and write. And when I began it, I thought of it very much as kind of a story about who did it. Um, and the general theory of the FBI, which uh, put in an undercover team to investigate the case, including an American Indian agent who worked on it. But their general theory was of kind of a, a singular evil figure with a few accomplices. Um, but the more I did research, the more I spoke with Osage descendants, the more I spent time in the archives, the more I began to realize that this was really a story about who didn't do it and that there really was a culture of complicity a culture of killing, and so many people um, participated in these crimes to steal the Osage money. Um, there were shootings, uh, there was poisonings, uh, there was a bombing. Um, morticians would cover up the crimes, doctors would administer the poisons, lawmen were on the take, politicians were on the take. And so um, many of the perpetrators ended up um, escaping justice. And one of the things that I the more I research the story, um, the more I realize that there was also a secondary crime, which gets to your question, 
which is that, you know, often with history, um, where, where there is an injustice, you try to provide at least some accounting and to identify the perpetrators for perpetuity and to record the voices of the victims. But because uh, there was such a cover-up, because so many of the suspects and witnesses are now dead, um, the perpetrators, at least in some of the cases, denied the victims even their history, even a proper accounting of what happened. Well, and and, and again, I think to talk about the the, the level of premeditation, uh, you have to explore the fact that there were non-natives that actually married into the families with the intent to to bump off the uh, the the Osage spouse, uh, so they would remain in control of the uh, of of the the dollars and and bore children with the you know with the Osage, and in fact would change you know literally the complexion, but but would change um, the makeup. Uh, the sentiment, the level of assimilation, all of that stuff of, of the Osage people. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that made these crimes so sinister, so just so that your listeners understand, so the Osage um, maintained what was called uh, essentially a mineral trust. They maintained the subsurface rights to all the mineral rights underneath their land, <laughs> and each Osage uh, who was on the tribal roll had a head right, which was essentially a share in that mineral trust. But a head right could not be bought or sold. So unlike surface territory, uh, that was uh, in some ways easier to swindle, um, it was harder to. And it, it involved inheritance schemes. And so that led to these incredibly macabre, calculating plots, plots often within plots that would unfold over years in which whites would marry into families and then begin to target the families. Um, and in order to inherit those head rights. And it just involved a level of intimate deception that is almost hard to fathom. These were not, these were deeply intimate crimes where the perpetrators were the people who the victims thought loved them, often slept in their beds with them, raised children with them, all the while they were secretly plotting to kill them. And steal their money. I mean, and this has to be almost unprecedented. I mean, uh, I, I don't know. I, and as Native people, we have obviously have uh, had any number of atrocious policies at the federal level, at state levels, perpetrated against us. But the idea that there would be this level of complicity with with um, major business owners, business people, uh, politicians, um, and just a level again of premeditation that would go into the idea of, like you said, it is complicated because you, this isn't like just walking off with you know uh, with somebody's cash. You actually had to gain control of those head rights, and 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 obviously uh, there was enough thought put into this thing to say, okay, well we'll marry in, and then and of course you you also had this is at a time where not only are you coming out of the Wild West era still. Um, but women's rights were still very, very, very limited. So the idea that, that a white man could uh, could wed a native woman and then gain control of her assets is certainly um, it, it wouldn't be unprecedented if it was if it was a white woman either. No, I mean, and 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 you know, if this had happened in kind of one family, you would say, well, those were some really singular evil people. But it happened. Um, many, many times. I mean, um, 
1923, um, the official death toll declined to more than uh, 24 Osage. And um, just to give an example, there's a woman named Molly Burkhardt, who I write about, a, a really remarkable Osage woman, who in many ways straddled both two centuries and two civilizations. She was born in the 1880s in a lodge speaking Osage, and within a few decades, um, she is living in a mansion, and she is married to a white settler. And um, one by one, her family members begin to be killed. I mean, she had a sister named Anna, who in 1921 in May disappears, and a week later she's found in a ravine shot in the back of the head. Uh, within two months, uh, Molly's mother dies of suspected poisoning. Not long after that, Molly had a younger sister named Rita who lived nearby, and about three in the morning, Molly heard an explosion, and she gets up as she goes to the window and looks out in the direction of her sister's house, and all she can see is this great orange ball rising into the sky. Somebody planted a bomb underneath their house, killing um, Rita, killing Rita's husband and a maid who lived in the house with them. Um, and so, you know, by 23, the official death toll was 24. And as I would come to realize, the death toll was in the scores, uh, really in the scores, perhaps even the hundreds. Well, and, and, and here's the thing. So not only do you have this, this theft of um, essentially oil revenue, but now you again you've changed the makeup of some of these families. These the the offspring the the heirs of of these murders are enrolled Osage members today. There there are still people that uh, that are there, and and it turns still inheriting out inheriting money. Still inheriting money, and and of course still inheriting they money. they are Osage. But um, not only would their their culture die with their uh, with their Osage ancestors. Even though they they too would be an Osage because they were actually going to be raised by uh, primarily by the the white folks who had it in for these folks, but um, it was more than just the money. From what I understand, there continued to be major land loss after this, and part of the whole thing is you you would ultimately have um, enrolled Osage members who who, who were more. Uh, I guess more influenced by their, their their white lineage than by their Osage lineage, and so there there are people today still living with the, the not just the ramifications of the loss of oil revenue, but the loss of land, the loss of culture, and all of that. So that's how current the the problem still you know the problem persists for what took place in in the nineteen twenties. Yeah, I mean one of the very anguishing parts of these stories is that. You had the perpetrators and the victims uh, living in the same houses, sure, uh, side by side. Um, I tracked down the granddaughter of Molly uh, Burkhart, a wonderful woman, and um, you know, she told me what it was like to grow up today, uh, generations later, without aunts and uncles. She took me out to the cemetery where you could see the deaths of so many of her wow. uh, ancestors, and you could see the deaths of so many other ancestors. You get the sense of how the breadth of this murder campaign. Um, and for me, talking to her and talking to other descendants, you get a sense about how this history is still living today, how it still reverberates to this day. She showed me a photograph um, from uh, Molly. It had um, a picture of Molly's husband, who was one of the perpetrators. And in the photograph, it showed Molly and her husband's. It showed Molly's husband uh, with their two children, and. Uh, somebody had ripped out the face of of Molly's husband, so it was just the two little kids, 
of their dad's picture had been ripped out, hmm. his face, and it was because he was one of the killers. Wow. And so it shows you in this family the anguish that continued. Here were these two little kids growing up in a household where their own father was plotting against them. Well, and, and again, I think um, the importance and the significance of telling the story is, is, is it's kind of what I try to do. There's, a, there's many, there, there are many parts of American history that are not just forgotten, but they're buried and, and intentionally buried. One of the things that I talk about all the time and uh, when I'm doing various events uh, here, both uh, associated with the station and, and other speaking events, is I talk about the fact that Abraham Lincoln signed the largest mass execution in the history of the United States when, when 38 Dakota were, were hung in 1862, the day after Christmas, a week before he signed the Emancipation Proclamation. So when I tell that history, it, it, it's like people are, are shocked. They're, they're shocked both at, at, the, at the, 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 the facts of the matter, but the fact that they didn't know it. And that, that, they, that this yeah. was, So when you're telling this story and you're telling the, a story of a major crime, you know, probably, you know, what would essentially should be, you know, related as one of the most notorious serial mass murders in, in the history of the United States. Again, at the dawn of the FBI. Um, and yet most people have no idea. Yeah, and I mean, and it's important to understand this was not that long ago. I mean, this is less than a century ago. And, I mean, the story really is a microcosm of so many of the forces that played out between Native Americans and white settlers and really that clash. And I don't think you could understand the American history or the formation of this country unless you understand events like this. You still have descendants of the murderers and the victims living in the same neighborhoods today. And their fates are intertwined. And in many ways, that's the story of America. And I don't think for a lot of people you can understand events like the Dakota protests unless you understand events like this. I, I interviewed an Osage not that long ago who served in the U.S. Army, um, received a Purple Heart in Afghanistan when he was wounded in battle. And during the Dakota protests, he walked um, nearly the whole way from Oklahoma to North Dakota to participate in the protests. And he told me that along the way he had thought about the Osage uh, killings. And even though the details, the particulars are very different about these incidents and they're separated by uh, many years, <clears throat> excuse me, um, he said it was still about the same fundamental issue, which is the right of Native Americans to control their land and resources. And I also interviewed a former Osage chief, um, and he said, uh, referring to that and also efforts to in some cases, um, murmuring from some current officials to try to further privatize reservations and break them up. He said, I cannot believe we're still having this fight today. Well, and, and, and again, if, if, the, if the events that you document in this book um, demonstrate one thing, it is the absolute dehumanization of, of, a, of a people. And this yeah. is part of what we're dealing with today. And, and, of course, we deal with it at so many different levels, not only with this current administration that, that still is putting Native territories in their crosshairs, even this, um, this idea of trying to uh, undo Obama's uh, you, uh, um, uh, executive order and, and some of the policies of, of, of uh, characterizing lands as national monuments to, to protect them. All of this... It, you know, does have a direct effect on Native people because that's been one of the tools that that were, was used, for instance, even with Oak Flats and other places. But the idea that we still have this issue and and the fact that Native people, in spite of um, 
being the the the, the proud heirs of uh, of so much you know of, of the entire the entire country essentially um, are living in extreme poverty. Uh, you, mm-hmm. If you look in in most native territories, our people lead uh, in all the categories that you don't want to lead in, like suicide, even youth suicide, um, violence against uh, you know uh, domestic violence, uh, uh, teen pregnancy, uh, alcoholism, drug abuse, all that stuff. Yeah, these are all the areas um, that, you know, unemployment, poverty rates, all that stuff. And it's a direct result of not only policies that were, uh, again, uh, initiated at the state and the federal levels, but the, the overt racism that exists. If you go around any native territory, usually... The- I spent most of my time just in Osage County, but I, I was there for many years, and I would uh, stay there for long periods of time. I didn't go to other territories, um, but I spent a lot of time in, uh, among the Osage Nation uh, researching the story. And I think, you know, your question about the prejudice of the time, again, this wasn't that long ago, and even when they captured a couple of the perpetrators... You know, the, the greater challenge was not just capturing them. It was whether 12 white male jurors, they were all 12 white mm-hmm. men at the time, would convict uh, another white man for killing Native Americans. And Even in the 1920s? Uh, in fact, the, yeah, yeah. And, in fact, the first jury was a hung jury. And um, there was also evidence that one of the jurors was bought, and there was corruption. Um, and another level, the prejudice, which is, you know, I did not know anything about before I started researching the book was that um, the Osage were scapegoated for their wealth. I mean, because it belied, it belied these long-standing stereotypes of Native Americans that were traced all the way back to the brutal first contact. And so members of the U.S. Congress would hold a hearing saying, what are we going to do about all this Osage wealth? And they passed legislation uh, requiring many Osage to have white guardians. Um, and this was this was this was really quite literally racist because it was based on the quantum of blood. So if you were a full-blooded Osage, you were deemed incompetent. And I put that in quotes. And then given a white guardian. So here you could be a great Osage chief leading a nation and have millions of dollars in your trust. And yet you could have a white guardian telling you what car you could purchase. Uh, uh, you know, can you get this toothpaste at a corner store? Um, and, and, and sometimes worse time. than that. I mean, uh, obviously, the the entire what they call the trust relationship between the United States and uh, and Native people is based on the United States feeling that our people were uh, were essentially incompetent and yeah, needed guardianship. And, yeah, yeah, this guardianship system. And of course, the system wasn't just racist; it also paternalistic. It, it also created one of the largest state and federally sanctioned criminal enterprises because. At least in the Osage case, where I'm familiar with, the guardians uh, would take kickbacks or purchase at certain stores. Um, they would skim money and swindled in the end millions and millions of dollars that were never um, uh, uh, recovered. Well, you fast forward to the to what would be uh, known as the Cobell suit, where the, uh, yes. the Bureau of Indian Affairs essentially um, squandered. Um, they lost. They they mismanaged. $40 billion worth of native assets uh, in everything yep. from oil leases, land leases, grazing leases, water leases. Um, they even lost track of, uh, of, of land title and issues like that. And, and of course, the United States would settle with, with 10 cents on the dollar 
And then, and then the, the very agency that was guilty of that, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, would manage some of that, those dollars that would come out of that settlement. It, 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 so this continues. It, and so it isn't just about the 1800s. It isn't just about the, you know, the early 20th century, uh, the era that you're talking about. It is something that continues even today. Yes, and, yes, and and um, and you you see that I mean um, again with the I was struck by several Osage who went to participate in the Dakota protest and could see that um, you know a through line between what had happened um, in the past and what is happening today. Yeah, I mean this it's an incredible story. I want to I want to thank you first first for writing the book. Um, I know this is, you know, uh, after seeing what you what you did with the Lost City of Z, this is you're, you seem to be impassioned with, with looking at this kind of history and 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 a history certainly that that shows that conflict between cultures. And there, there may be no story that demonstrates it uh, more than than this book, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon by David Grant. David, I know I only had you for a half hour, so I want to thank you so much for joining us here. Perhaps when you're back in New York, we'll. Uh, We'll catch up. Uh, we'll catch up again. That would be wonderful. Thank you again. Well, and again, I want to thank you. That, that, again, that's uh, that's David Grand. That is, he is so the great author. To hear from him. Oh, absolutely, and uh, uh, author of uh, a best-selling uh, novel, um, uh, *The Lost City of Z*, which is an, a major motion picture in theaters today. Can't um, recommend that enough. To uh, definitely go see that. And then, of course, now uh, this is his book that's on the market today, *The Killers of the Flower*.